This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with the uh, the interviewer of both of our interviews, Richard Lawson, the busiest man on Little Gold Men this week. Hello. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't show up much on these interview episodes, so I guess uh, double duty makes sense. This is like a special treat for anyone who's been waiting for you to probe famous people with your questions. Um, we'll start with a conversation that you had back in March at the Miami Film Festival with the, with the director, Ramin Barani. Uh, you were talking about a movie of his that you had seen there, but is now coming out, right? Yeah, it's called Second Chance. Um, and it's an interesting project from Barani who has worked sort of in docu-fiction before with like Man Push Cart, but this is his first f- true like feature documentary. Um, and true to what he does, which is kind of investigate lives on the edges of the American margins, he tells a really interesting story about the inventor of the bulletproof vest, essentially, this guy named huh. Richard Davis, who is very strange. But really, the movie, if you can believe it, Katie, is about much more than that. Mm, I see hidden death potential just in that logline alone. Yeah, it's there's a lot of, I think, commentary about like gun culture in America in here. Um, and unfortunately, the chat wasn't terribly long because it was just a post-screening Q&A. But, uh, you know, we said when the movie came out, we'd run the audio um, because I think it's a really interesting film. And any little bump we can give it in terms of getting people interested in seeing it, we're happy to do. Yeah. So, yeah, people can't see it for a few more weeks yet, right? Right. Um, it'll be out in theaters. Bleecker Street's releasing it on December 2nd. Um, you know, and I'm not sure how many theaters it's going to be in, but I believe they have some sort of deal with Showtime. So maybe it'll appear on there uh, in the coming weeks or months. Yeah. And people can find the trailer online and uh, learn more about it in your conversation with Ramin Barani. Hello. I think I might have already been introduced, but I'm Richard Lawson. I'm the chief film critic at Vanity Fair. So happy to be here uh, at the Miami Film Festival with this remarkable film's director, Ramin Barani. Hi, Ramin. Hi, thank you. Thanks for doing this. You have in this movie two portraits. One of 
this kind of human metaphor for a nation's obsession with violence and reprisal and and all that. And then in the, in the the epilogue of the film with Clifford and Aaron, maybe an example of a different kind of justice, restorative justice. Um, were those themes that were in your mind when you sought out to make the film in the, in its inception? No, not not exactly because. Um Clifford was never part of the the original conception of the film. We didn't know anything about him. You know, initially when the producers, Johnny and Daniel, uh, approached me about the project, it was to see if I wanted to make a fiction film, and they were going to make a documentary at the same time. And when when I started looking at the material and the archival videos, Richard's own movies that he had directed and also, also the archivals about him shooting himself... Um, I just thought there was a potential for a, for me to make the documentary. I asked them, and thank God they said yes. And um, when we went, did the first round of shooting, I think I just finished, um, I just locked the edit on White Tiger. So this was in um, November 2020, I think. And so we went up to Michigan for the first round of shooting in, in November 2020. And... Um, in speaking to Aaron Westrick, I came to understand there was a man, Clifford Washington. He hadn't seen him in 40 years, but he had talked to him once on the telephone a decade ago, and I heard about him. And when we left that round of shooting, I asked Johnny and Daniel, please find Clifford, and if we're lucky, he's going to be a, an interesting character. And at that point, I mentioned to them in, in the car, if, if we do find him, I think we should reveal him in the very end of the film. So that idea came to me at that moment, and then... They found him, and we went back in April of 2021 to do a second round of shooting, and that's where we met him for the first time. So that reunion of theirs was, in some part, facilitated by the film. Yeah, I asked them if they wanted to meet, and they said yes. Well, so much about the film concerns the the legacy of violence, whether it's one you know stupid thing that a young Clifford did, or if it's Iwo Jima, you know, something that is memorialized in a famous statue, and certainly Richard is obsessed with that legacy. Um, how did you find Richard as an interview subject? I mean, you're mostly a scripted fiction filmmaker. Um, it's kind of a trite question, maybe, but did you approach him as a character? No, um, not that different than a, than a fiction film. I mean, it's, of course, very different because a fiction film, you've written it, you've planned it, there's pre-production. Still, when you're shooting a fiction film, I, I like to approach each day of shooting as if it, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, as if there could be lots of discoveries that day that you've never thought about. And increasingly in my work, I'm pushing the actors to find things they've never done before and have never thought about and that we've never discussed. And I'm pushing my crew for the same. And if someone finds something new, great, and we will rearrange the shooting accordingly. Here, I think the surprise for us was we, I think we went there thinking that Richard was going to tell us about his rise and his fall and he was going to have some remorse about things he had done in the past. But when we got there, he didn't seem to have remorse about anything. And, um, he wasn't very self-reflexive. He, 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 there was some dissonance in his mind about what had happened and what he thought had happened. And um, we just kind of had to embrace that. He was still a charming guy. I mean, uh, every time we showed up, he had made macaroni for us or had brought cookies for us. And none of it, I don't think, was to, 
woo us into making a movie that would be good for him. I think that's just the way he is. Um, so he did have that charm, and you can even see it in the people that he bothered. They still seem to care about him somehow. Um, so I, I, I like that about him. Do you agree with one of his ex-wives' assessment that he is a narcissist? <laughs> Diplomatic. Uh... Yeah, it's, I'm not... It's good for her to say it. I, I, you know, I don't agree with all of Richard's philosophies. I, I find some of them abhorrent. And at the same time, he was very courageous. He pointed a gun at his own invention to prove that it worked, and that invention saved thousands of people. Uh, you cannot take that away from him. Most people would not be prepared to do that. Um, the rest of it, I, I shouldn't judge it. I am just was asking questions and listening to the answers. So you mentioned that you had gone to meet him thinking maybe he would have this contrition and a sort of perspective, and, and you found it to be quite the opposite. When you're making a film where there's a surprise to you like that, how does that change how you think about the work? I mean, are you adapting all the time when you're making a film like this? Yeah, it, it changes. It, it impacts the qu- kind of questions you're asking. Um, it You start to, when you go back to edit, you're thinking of the movie in a different way. And then you're asking the producers to find other people because because there's certain things he's not going to reveal. You're looking for other people to color him in a new way. So when we went, when we went back to shoot again, I really wanted to meet the second wife. They were able to find her. I was very curious to talk to a worker from Second Chance. So we met a few of them, and we ended up with Brenda, the woman with MS. So you start to get a different portrait of Richard and also a different portrait of the events, of the community, of the themes of the film. Um, In that respect, I was thinking of how you learn about Citizen Kane through the the different people the journalist is going to talk to, that kaleidoscopic idea of who is Kane. So I was thinking, I got to get other people to talk here because he will only go so far um, as a subject himself. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating cast of you know, real people um, who tell that story. I mean, speaking of casts, um, so many of your other films feel oddly akin to this one in that you have told a lot of stories in Chop Shop, Man Push Cart, 99 Homes, White Tiger, stories about people both maneuvering economic systems as they exist and then in some cases creating their own sort of, not workaround, but sort of different path through do you see Richard's story, the story of Second Chance, like as a part of that broader interest of yours, or am I wrong in inferring that interest? Yeah, no, I think they're similar themes. Um, in a way, all the characters are pursuing some version of the dream. They're all impacted by moral decisions or ec- and often economic decisions. So, um, no, I think that was one of the reasons I was interested. I, I remember when they uh, brought the project to me, I was also thinking about Arthur Miller um, and his play All My Sons. I don't know if you're familiar with the play, but the, the yeah, the father was creating um, uh, military planes for the war. They had a defect in them. He didn't say anything. People died. Um, the son finds out, but that ends in suicide because Miller is a very moralistic playwright and here I thought it was it was going in a whole other direction. So yeah, I think there were themes similar to the fiction films. Do you credit your interest in those themes to anything from your own education, upbringing? Uh, 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, my, my dad comes from a pretty poor background in Iran. He came from a small village, um, and his father had been killed when he was very young, so there was very little money in the family, and he, he was the one, the, I guess his brother sacrificed education to work, and he's the one that managed to go to school, come to America, and he's a physician, but in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but working mainly with the working class and the poor there, um, which I thought I was always exposed to as a kid, and maybe this had something to do with it. What were the um, good and bad challenges of shifting into documentary for this? I mean, did it feel markedly different from your past work? Um, I didn't have to write a script, um, which was great, because that's the hardest part, I think. You know, the editing process was different. This is the first... I think I edited four of my films alone, and three of them I was editing in one room and I had an awesome editor in another room. This was the first time I actually didn't touch a computer for editing, and I had this amazing editor, Aaron Wickenden, who cuts a lot for Morgan Nelville and, and other doc directors, and uh, he was a joy to work with. Um, we worked very closely over a long period of time. The editing took a long time, more, more than we thought. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error attempts at how to structure the film. Um, in that process, I think uh, Joshua Oppenheimer became very, um, he was an important part of that process. When I showed him the, an earlier cut, we had a three-hour Zoom, and, and that, that conversation helped us a lot in terms of how to get the thing to the next, to the next stage, yeah. Has Richard seen the film? Yes, Richard. Uh, Johnny and Daniel took the film up to um, Michigan before the Sundance premiere and showed it to uh, Richard and his son. Yeah. Did they offer any impressions, or do you, does that matter to you? I guess. Yes, because my intention was never to go there and make a film, uh, a takedown movie or anything like that. I, I I really wanted to know what. I wanted to know Richard. I wanted to know what had happened and, and what was the course of events and what did he think about it. And I think um, I think he was happy with some of the film and maybe not all of it. Um, you know, I think Matt, in the end, he watched it a few times and, and I think he's happy with most of it. And he pointed out something we corrected that he thought was factually not exactly right. And I think he had a point, so we changed that. Yeah, I mean, as we see him in the film, he's very good at compartmentalizing stuff that's really critical and damning of him. He's like, oh, yeah, that's that article or whatever. So maybe this is just, this film is another part of that process for him. Yeah. I mean, the fireworks was China's fault and, you know. Yeah. Right. That, well, right. I mean, what can I say? I, don't we all do that to some degree or another? I mean, uh, we all wake up telling ourselves something to help us get through the day, whatever that is. Uh, I could make a film today, I'm going to write a great article today. Whatever the thing is, we have to convince ourselves to get through it. Um, in this case, people were hurt, so that makes it a little different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think your film really well balances, though, the character study with the broader implications. Do you feel like you want to keep on this documentary path now that you're on it, or...? Do you miss aspects of doing the, the, the other side of things? Well, I'll do both. Um, I had made a, a few short docs prior to this. In fact, we had started a short doc before COVID, and we're, I'm supposed to go back in um, end of April or so to finish that one. So I th I'd like to do both. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
whatever format they take, your unique and really valuable perspective is going to shine through either way. <laughs> the first short doc I did, uh, Werner liked it and said I should keep making them. So, well, Werner likes it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, good, yeah. he's pretty honest. So yeah. I thought if he didn't like it, he would have said so. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're just about out of time, but uh, Ramin, thank you for the film, for the insight you just gave us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you all for coming and, and staying for this chat. Thank appreciate you. it. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So now, Richard, let's hear the conversation you had with Brian Tyree Henry, who is a nominee at the upcoming Gotham Awards, uh, one of the first big award shows of the entire season. And as we discussed in a recent episode, has this really wonderful standout supporting turn in the film Causeway. Yeah, he's really great in the movie. You know, the big story was, of course, Jennifer Lawrence, who made Don't Look Up last year, but before that had taken some time away from from acting. Um, and this is her in a very different mode. It's small, it's quiet, and it, none of it really would work unless it had the ballast of Brian Tyree Henry, who also was working in a quieter mode than, say, Bullet Train or Eternals. But um, as ever, his natural charisma and, uh, you know, intellect shines through even in a kind of soft-spoken role. Yeah, I mean, he, and I think we've talked about this on the show, every time he shows up on screen, he like, comes alive as a real person to me in some way, like even when he's not doing a whole lot, as in Causeway, like you're saying, it's kind of an understated performance, like you just feel like the entire churning of a person who feels real right in front of you. And then he's got this really stellar monologue toward the end of the film, where, which really allows him to like, you know, dig deep and reveal more about what's been behind this character who's been a little taciturn before that. Um, it's a really exceptional performance. Yeah. And I was just curious to talk to him to, you know, hear, hear about his process. I mean, he's an actor that we've all admired for a few years now. And um, this was my first chance to interview him. So I was really happy to do it. Yeah. And with Atlanta wrapping up right now, it's kind of an interesting pivot point. Uh, you know, he's been in a Marvel movie and now he's uh, done with his show. Uh, the future kind of seems the, the possibilities kind of seem endless for, for where he'll go next. Uh, so let's hear your conversation with Brian Tyree Henry. Well, I'm so happy to be on the line now with one of the stars of Causeway, Brian Tyree Henry. Brian, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. And thank you for um, being here specifically to talk about this movie and performance, which is such an interesting, understated piece of work. I guess I want to start with uh, sort of the origin about how you got to this project. Did it come to you? Did you come to it? 
When the project came to me uh, in 2019, I uh, was uh, offered the part of James and was told that Jennifer Lawrence was attached to it, which for me, you know, was a no brainer. I've been a fan of um, Jen's for for some time and I've always admired her work. Um, but Lila was also attached to it. And I have a history with Lila being that we went to Yale together. She was undergrad and I was grad and we were great friends then. And then it extended into our uh, New York tenure on stage where she was directing and I was acting and I'd always wanted to be in one of her plays <laughs> and it never happened. Uh, so when this came along for her first feature, I chomped at the bit. Had you worked with like a theater director who was kind of shifting into film before? And is there a sort of a noticeable quality that a theater director brings to a film as you're being directed by them? Well, I'll start with the latter first. You know, there is something to uh, the essence of what a theater director brings to film, being that it is more of a collaborative effort, uh, especially when working with Lila. Um, it was something that was really, really um, amazing to experience, especially handling a piece like this, she's really uh, hands-on. She's very much in the process with you. She wants to know exactly why um, we're doing what we're doing. It's not so much about the shots. It's not so much about the lighting. It really isn't, even though those are parts that are necessary. But she really wants to know about through line, um, emotionally, physically, how you're feeling, where the character is coming from, and uh, takes a skill of true collaboration. It takes a director that is willing to release a lot of things. It takes a director that's willing to listen um, mostly. And so Lila brought all of that. So she gave us, uh, Jen and I, a safe space to really crack open who we thought these characters were and where their their lives were going. Something that I think is so interesting about the film and, and specifically these two performances at the center of it is you guys are able to say a lot without saying a lot, you know, like there's a sure. lot of quietness to the movie. And what is that like to tackle as an actor? I mean, you've done huge pro Marvel projects, you've done theater and now this small, intimate, independent film. Like, um, do you have to shift your approach to the entire craft or is it just plucking a different string? I think it's just about focusing and honing in on where that character is, what, what the environment is. Um, you know, it's one thing to do a film that's a speeding train and lots of explosions and blood and things like that. And then switching to an actual human connection between another person, the stillness of it, um, which I actually yearn for. Um, you know, I've done a lot of different genres. Um, I've done you know, comedy and, and, and all these different things. And I wanted to show another side of me. And that honestly was just um, a space of a person living and trying to make a connection with someone else. Uh, what it was like to actually like drop the veneer of, of, of covering up what grief is like and what pain is like and actually exposing what a human connection looks like on the other side. The greatest thing about Causeway is that the script wasn't incredibly complicated. You know, it wasn't a script that came with, you know, a huge climax, this huge conflict is going to happen here and, you know, twists and turns here. It was just a piece um, of two people existing. And I really wanted that. I think that I, I, I needed that at the time. And I just wanted to show, I think we wanted to show, honestly, what, what an honest friendship and building of a friendship looked like. Um, what it's like to navigate grief and trauma. Um, more, more often than not, most people don't have the words for that. More often than not, people aren't really readily, have the words readily available to say, this is what I'm feeling, this is how it looks, this is what it is, because it's different for everybody. And I think Causeway served in a place to just show two people 
navigating their own personal traumas and also getting on the other side of it. You know, the, a project as intimate as this, where it's really a two-hander, um, at least, you know, you guys are just in so many scenes, just the two of you together. Obviously, that has to rely a great deal on the script, on the director, but also on a chemistry between the two actors. So I'm curious, like, did you and Jennifer Lawrence have to do a lot of work to build to that, or did it come naturally? <laughs> uh, uh, both, actually. But for the most part, it was really what was happening in between takes that um, informed where these characters would go, because... You know, Jen is truly, you know, she's been at this game way longer than I have. She is um, so powerful and so mesmerizing in her performances. And to see her come back to a movie like this, where she's playing this character with this weight and this pain that is just trying to find a way to uh, get by. There's something that she does so well, and that's bringing the humanness to the surface of her characters. And I was really excited to... um, play with her when it came to that but it was also really just about who we were in between you know like who how we connected with each other how we called each other out on our shit how we we you know would talk about what was going on around us and we in essence saw that and we're like oh well this truly is the essence of who James and Lindsay are this is the kind of connection that they have been wanting to find I think that she and I in our own personal lives were were relating in such a way that we couldn't hide it from what we thought that these two characters in the film should be. I, I do think I have to say that Causeway might be missing a scene of James and Lindsay talking about the Real Housewives, though. No, my God, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's some things we should keep to ourselves. That's our fair. Little personal things. <laughs> so, That's like, yeah. Fair maybe enough. that's the next part. <laughs> some sort of comedy, maybe a, a light comedy, a, a little light comedy. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about the film is that I think in a lesser version of this story, James's character is really there to kind of serve as the sounding board for Lindsay. He's just kind of the trusty friend, you know, but but there's a fullness to his being in the movie. We feel like we get to know him as well as Lindsay. Was striking that balance, finding that balance, was that just on the page and you just had to go with it? Or was there work in kind of, were you constantly trying to consider like, okay, where is James in this story? Well, there's a few things that that helped with the formation of what this friendship was to become. I didn't want James to be a person that just appeared whenever Lindsay was in need. Right. I didn't want James to be this person that just appeared whenever she was at her low and he was there to pick her up. You know, I didn't want it to be that thing. James is a person who was born and raised in New Orleans. He has suffered his own losses. He, you know, made the decision or life made the decision for him that New Orleans is where he would be anchored and that's it. Either it being his need of feeling like he is devoted to being a part of the place that he suffered the biggest tragedy in his life or be it the need that he actually thinks that he can some way um, change the outlook of it. But whatever it is, is that he made the decision to stay in a place that served as um, a reminder of the biggest loss he ever had. I don't think that he in any way thought that he would make another connection, a new connection in a place that's so old to him. You know, I don't, I don't think that he thought in any way that anyone would forgive him for the things that he went on or that he would ever forgive himself. Um, And so the introduction of Lindsay to his life brings about hope a little bit. It brings about uh, this kind of excitement that there may actually be somebody that sees him uh, for more than the trauma that he suffered, for more than the losses that he suffered. There's actually 
a possibility. And I think that's the thing with James and Lindsay is that there's a possibility of something more than what they are. They're not just their disabilities. They're not just their grief anymore. They're actually two people who have so much more in common. And the commonality is that they want to get on with their lives. They want to really find, um, again, I use the word connection a lot because that is, is truly what it is. And so, you know, there were some things that I felt we really needed. Um, and, and, you know, Jen and I talked about how to come back to this piece, because when we filmed it the first time, we knew there was something that was just missing. We were like, there's just a piece, there's a piece missing. And, and we realized it's that kind of that kind of jovialness of actually meeting somebody that can see you for who you are. And I think that that is what, in essence, Jen and I saw in each other. And so we came back um, to the project in the summer of 2021, and we added a lot more scenes of the two of them because we didn't want this to be um, one of those trauma dramas. You know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't want it. We didn't want it to be one of those things where you see these people bonding through trauma, and then that's just it. You know, we wanted there to be. Um, some kind of recognition that there is another side, that there is a way to create a whole new connection and still serve your grief at the same time. Uh, and so we explored quite a few things, um, but mostly what we wanted to showcase for the audience and for ourselves was that here are these two people existing with each other. Here are these two people that aren't completely marred by their their, their uh, disabilities and their traumas, but they actually can have a burger together. They can actually go swimming together. They can actually laugh. They can actually talk about something else and be um, uh, uh, different things with each other. And in essence, actually get back to who they were before their traumas um, impacted their lives. Because look, trauma has this weird way of trapping you in, in, the, in the age and place of when it happened. And you kind of carry it with you for for however long it is but to actually feel like there's a possibility of something is what we wanted to show we really wanted them to feel like there were possibilities well i think that there's a certain poetry then to the fact that you were filming in new orleans you know which has its own you know trauma in its past uh you know not even 20 years ago with uh, the hurricane Did, do you feel like that added a certain texture to the process oh there's no way it couldn't there's yeah. no way it couldn't i think that actually doing uh the movie there served it even more so just because New Orleans is in New Orleans is, is uh, no stranger to suffering a great loss. It's no stranger to trauma, but it's also no stranger to rebuilding itself. Mm -hmm. It's no stranger to um, being a place of rejuvenation. You know, there is something in that soil that really um, lends itself to healing. It really does. And so um, and also the correlation to water, right? So, you know, the movie is called Causeway because it's named after the actual causeway that's there. That's like, I think, 26 or 29 miles long. Um, I believe it's only two lanes. I believe that it, it stretches over a huge body of water. There's no way to turn around. There's no exits. And that, in essence, feels like grief. That, in essence, feels like um, what a true connection uh, can be, because it's like, well, once you make the journey to, to traverse this this stretch of road, there's no going back. You know, there's no going back. You have to get over it. You have to go over that water. You can't exit. You can't turn around. You have to go on the journey. And I feel like that, in essence, is what grief is. Um, I also feel like, in essence, that's kind of what a true uh, human connection feels like at the same time. You make the um, decision to connect to somebody, and that means that you're going to traverse whatever obstacle there is to get to the other side. So, um 
you know, we I really wanted to as the New Orleans native in the movie to and so is Jen. Jen's character is also a New Orleans native. Um, she's just one that left, you know, and and what we all what we wanted to show the most of um, in this movie is what home can look like. No matter what loss looks like, you can find home again. And I feel like for me personally, when I endured loss, the first thing I wanted to do was run and find another place, you know, like I didn't want to stay in the same ground that that gave so much heartache. But I realized that, you know, the the old adage is true that wherever you go, there you are. Right. Like no Mm -hmm. matter where you go, there you are. Um, And also as a person who has also been trying to find home for a long time um, to finally know what that looks like or to know the shape of it and to know that it is accessible um, creates great hope, you know? And I think that that is the journey that we want to take the audience on when they see these two characters meet each other and, and, and go on this journey together in this film. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. You say you've been trying to find home for a long time. I'm curious, do you, do you mean like physically or do you mean sort of more? In every sense of the in, word. In every, every sense. In every definition of what home is, I think that I, for a long time, have been trying to find that. And, um, and that's a big part of why I took this film is because I felt like, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to play a lot of characters who, when you meet them in the film, you're already in their home, right? Like they were either born where they're from, you know, they live there, they've never left. Um, and, and, and I'm the exact opposite of that. <laughs> like, I am the person that has bounced around for most of my life. So like when I get to confront that kind of thing of like what home means um, within these characters, and in essence, uh, uh, helps me heal and helps me, uh, you know, helps the lens um, become a little clearer of what's obtainable. And so, you know, when I got to play James, I was often um, questioning why he chose to stay home. Like, why? Like, you know, before the accident that he um, endures, you know, there there was a possibility of living there with his sister and his nephew, which is now gone. Uh, before he endured the, the loss, he was able to walk on both feet up the stairs, you know, like before that loss, he, I believe, was a, a fairly happy person. And yet after that loss, he made sure that he stayed in the exact same place um, of where he suffered that loss. And I and I really wanted to unpack what that was because I find that people who go through grief or go through loss suffer from the same thing that most amputees suffer from, and that's called phantom limb. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with phantom limb, you think that, that, you know, that appendage is still there. You still wake up thinking that you can walk the same way, that you can move the same way, and, and you can't. It takes work because that appendage isn't there anymore. And I feel like the same thing is with grief. When you lose a person that you have, you know, 
you've woken up to every day or that you talk to every day isn't there, there's still a part of your body that actively acts as if though it still exists. And that, in essence, is one of the hardest things to do and one of the hardest things to get over um, because it takes a training and a rethinking and a reshaping of how to live. And so I think that that's where we find James who has been through that for quite a while, who then meets Lindsay, who is going through it for the first time. So in essence, they become each other's strengths and they're each other's kind of rehab, um, each other's kind of physical therapy and, and trying to navigate what their their lives are as people who are labeled as disabled, you know, like right. because grief sometimes feels like a disability as well, um, you know, and, and the fact that your life has shifted in a way and you have to find a way to either heal uh, and how to get better, how to move through it, how to change the room around in order for you to 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 move around easier. Um, it, that's what grief, in essence, feels like. So when they meet each other, one is on one end of the spectrum of their uh, grief and disability, while the other one is just starting the journey. And I think that's how the healing comes when somebody can recognize what one is going through and and pull the other person along and bring them along to show them that there is something on the other side um and vice versa you know where the person who is just beginning can show the person who's been in it a little longer that hey there is a there is a beginning there's a way to start fresh at the same time so um yeah there were a lot of things that that came to the surface for me in causeway when dealing with um navigating grief which is a big reason why i took the part there is this one crucial scene where the fact that James has lost part of his leg um, is really much more physically manifest than it is. He uses a prosthetic in most scenes, but then he takes it off in this pool scene. Uh, from a technical perspective, what were the physical acting challenges of that? How much did you have to kind of do to simulate that? Because I'm just curious about how that all worked. Well, you know, we've got the little special, you know, green screen that right. was there. But for the most part, I... There were a few things I was going through with that because it is about a shedding, right? It is about like laying, like making yourself bare in, in your own way. And that scene in particular was tricky because here we are on the property of somebody's uh, <laughs> home that right. this pool doesn't belong to us. So there's danger. Uh, there's always danger when it comes to burying yourself, right? There's always the sense of danger and a sense of, of things being revealed and you can't really take it back. And so, you know, for her to ask him to join her in the pool comes at a place where he knows that there's danger, but actually goes, you know what, there's safety here, too. And so I feel like when he decided to go through the process of, you know, taking his clothes off and then actually like the process of what it's like to take off, you know, the prosthetic leg, it still felt like anything before that, like before him getting in the pool, um, was something that was a bit of a burden before because like, you know, he's trying to cover up that scar. He's trying to move, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, like a normal person, you know, like, so he's, I was like, I bet he stopped wearing shorts. I bet that he, you know, is always in pants. I bet he hasn't gone swimming since the accident. You know, I bet that there's been a lot of things that he denied himself. And so her asking him to swim felt like he wasn't being denied anymore. And so, 
you know, you get in there, you're in the pool. But the great the great thing about water is that you can feel weightless. You know what I mean? Like there's there's mo- there's moments in water where you can truly float above and you can feel weightless. And that's what that scene kind of felt like. I always refer to that scene as the baptism scene because mm. it's like he submerged himself finally. And all the things that he carried with him before he got in the pool are just completely in their own way, even for a moment, washed away. And for both of them. I mean, like that, you know, they literally kind of you kind of see glimmers of them as being children again, you know, and like, you know, racing each other, swimming or sitting in silence and staring at the stars. And there's something to be said about baptisms, right, is that it's supposed to cleanse away the sins. It's supposed to wash away um, whatever it was that that held you down and made you feel, you know, burdened. And you kind of see that. But then on the other side is that the truths come to the surface, right? Like all of a sudden, um, just like that, there's a turn and the truths come to the surface. And when the truth hits James, there's no easy escape for him. So then he has to swim to the ledge and then he has to pull himself out with one leg and then he has to get back up and then he has to put the leg back on and then he has to put the clothes back. There's no quick escape for him. And so then you get to see the other side of what happens when you lay yourself bare or make yourself bare and unburden yourself is that there's also the threat that there's no easy way out. There's no quick escape either. Um, You kind of have to sit in your shit. And um, I think that that is something that both Lindsay and James bring out of each other uh, and something that they both show each other um, that there's no easy way out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really beautiful scene and it's, it's a beautiful performance and, People really should seek out Causeway um, and seek out the rest of your work if they're not familiar with it. I, I want to just to kind of close out, um, go back in time a little bit to New Haven, which was your home for a few years. Um, you're at Yale and kind of imagining your career. How does that sort of younger Brian match up with what you're doing now? I mean, you've, you've had all these incredible opportunities and many more to come, I'm sure. Um, do you ever check in with that sort of earlier part of your career, your ambition? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I never let him go anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, yeah. I keep him right next to me all the time. I am still in touch with a lot of the people that I went um, through to yell with. Um, I mean, even so reflected with working with Lila, um, because, you know, the, the biggest part about that Brian then is that he's not far from the Brian now and that, you know, he didn't really have a, a map of what he thought his journey was going to look like. He just opened the map and went for it. You know, he just he just wanted to see. He wanted to give himself a shot. So he just went for it. Um, also, there are so many people that are a part of where I am that saw something in me and pushed me to go, hey, try this, you know, like, see, see about this. What if you do this? What if you, you know, and I know what the other side of that looks like. I know what the other side of like not having anyone see you and not having anyone actually understand or connect with what you, what you may want or see bigger for you feels like. So when you have those people come across your path, you, you should probably lean into that more often than not. Um, and just give yourself a fighting shot. So, you know, the map is still in front of me. You know, uh, I, you know, I'm not using GPS on it. I'm just got the map out and I'm just like looking at the different trails and looking at the places that haven't been traversed and, and giving myself a fighting shot. So I want to continue to be that guy. I want to continue to serve that Brian then um, and by doing what I'm doing now, because, you know, he didn't really he didn't really know <laughs> what it yeah. was, but he was up for the journey, you know. And that's what I do with every part that I take and, and, and every project that I'm a part of. I'm, I want to give myself a shot to take a journey. 
Well, we've been enjoying watching you on your journey and uh, wish you continued success. And thank you again for talking with us today. Of course. Thank you so much. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. You can find us in the meantime at Twitter for now at HWD and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And you can also email us littlegoldmen at VF.com. We really love hearing from you directly. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.